You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Moritz Sieber and I, Niels Kastelarsen are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we focus on helping you build safer and better performing portfolios by including trend following in the mix, and where we do our best to answer all of your questions. Jerry Moritz, good morning, good afternoon. How are things where you are today? Good morning. Cold today, about, uh, about uh, zero degrees centigrade, so cold winter day. Very dark outside since we started very early this morning to get to for this podcast, but it's uh, Gasparilla weekend in Tampa, sort of our version of um, an all-day party, and the pirates invade Tampa once again. Yeah, big rookie mistake on my side, suggesting that we start recording at 6 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, because I just realized that the hotel I'm at, uh, the, the coffee shop doesn't open until 7, so... Uh, so trying to fight through this uh, recording without any caffeine today, but there we are. Of course, a quick review of what um, what happened this week. I mean, uh, I guess uh, China another sort of took center stage another time, uh, not so much for trade negotiations this time, and, and also despite a lot of inferential people uh, meeting up in Davos in Switzerland, but of course China in the center of attention around the world for, for this uh, Corona virus, um, which have forced them to put on some travel restrictions and and other things in in some cities. So, so that was um, the big news, I guess. Um, and and that kind of news obviously played some role uh, in investors becoming a little bit more risk averse, maybe uh, in stocks a little bit. Um, but also, we saw uh, the influence of this in in the energy markets that seemed to have seen a, a big drop in enthusiasm uh, the last couple of days. And um, I guess as investors became a little bit more cautious, uh, fixed income markets actually had a little bit of a tailwind uh, this week. Um, so, um, Moritz, what were you watching this week? Any big moves? Um, and we can, I guess, jump straight into how it all panned out uh, on your side this week. Yeah, some nice moves. I'm uh, pretty happy and stoked up about my uh, portfolio. Um, I'm about 4% year today. Last week was a bit more than 1%. So um, really good start into the year. Like you said, Niels, um, the last week was about the bonds, um, which I'm still long. So US bonds, Canadian bonds, Canadian bank bills, the euro dollar, all of that. I'm long and that made good money. Um, another some you know notable positions on the long side that went well was um, milk, uh, the CME milk contract. You know small market, uh, not a large position. Well, I have a smaller portfolio, but uh, it worked. Um, and for the shorts, I have a short position on in crude, in copper. All of those were goods. And on the uh, losing side, uh, well, some of the equity markets, uh, a long exposure to the China A50 index, to MSCI Russia, that wasn't so great. But anyhow, um, you know how it is. Some of those markets give and some of those markets don't. And uh, it's a bit more than 1% for the week. So very happy about it. Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. I remember last week you said you were getting longer in energy, but then so the crude side is something that 
has kind of performed differently or moved differently since you're short? Um, yeah, so I have some of the, the, the energy markets since a while. I have um, in, in gasoline and in gas oil different positions on selling crude. I mean, we, you know, we've uh, said repeatedly that those markets tend to be highly correlated, but not all of the time. Sure. And um, my signals in Brent and WTI, they were really changing quite a bit over the past couple of months. And uh, now I am net short again, uh, only only you know since a since a few days really, yeah. and um, and this has worked. Good for you. On our side, uh, a different picture. I would say this week we certainly gave back some of the uh, early gains in January. Still up for the month, but uh, not as much. Um, on our side, it certainly was the energy sector that um, you know had both winners and losers. I will say, but uh, the biggest ones were. To the downside, uh, on Reddit, uh, Brent uh, took a bit of a beating, um, but NetGas did pretty well. Uh, fixed income, if well, let me try that again. Uh, fixed income uh, did pretty well. Uh, so still like you, um, long, not to a large extent, but some long still there. Equities um, clearly gave way some profits um, with those corrections. I would say currencies. Kind of a mixed picture, uh, a few winners, a few losers, but overall probably flat overall. Um, lost a bit of money in uh, soybean oil, but then the rest of the grains did okay. And then, um, yeah, copper wasn't a great market for us this week. We made a little bit of money in, in, in gold, uh, kind of flat in silver. So, yeah, I mean, a mixed bag, um, but uh, certainly a little bit of a headwind on our side. So... Um, correction in terms of performance. Um, yeah, what about you, Jerry? What's happening on your in in your portfolio at the moment? Well, the big one is palladium, and uh, that continues to skyrocket higher. Gold and platinum hanging in there better than the other commodities. This is kind of weakness on Friday or later in the week, and some of the <clears throat> softs and greens and things. So, uh, yeah, I. Uh, Every day, it's except Friday, the palladium was just out of control. Just like my Tesla position kind of uh, has these crazy up, up moves. Uh, I'm long, still long my smaller amount of bonds as well. So that's good. That was kind of a, been a choppy. It's a good example of why the data and the backtesting says, hey, you should trade longer term. Because sometimes, you know, when you get crushed in these markets and you have these violent givebacks, they kind of don't keep going down. They just hang in there, hang in there. And then all of a sudden, we've, we've had a pretty good week in some of those uh, government bond futures. So that's a testament to holding on to a good trade. Uh, even though it gives back some profit, it may go back to the highs. So good for us and good for you guys. Yeah, I read an article, um, I think yesterday, a headline saying that the move in palladium is costing the car industry, maybe even over, maybe it was just referring to the European car industry, but the car industry like $18 billion a year. I'm not entirely sure what they use palladium for in a car, but... Um, it's uh, like catalytic converters. Oh yeah, that's what it was, that's right. Yeah, it's yeah. a byproduct, I think, of mining platinum and nickel. I, I was on a TV, couple of uh, TV shows this week, you know, small channels where I do a five or 10 minutes of talking about the markets and uh, <clears throat> to varying degrees, these uh, shows are knowledgeable and care about, uh, you know, technical trend following versus fundamentals. So uh, one of them I was going to be on and he 
goes back and forth between realizing that I'm just pure trend and, well, what do you think about so-and-so? So I usually enlist my uh, friends on Twitterverse to say, hey, give me some fundamental information that I can you know, speak about. And, but I did my own research on Google on uh, <clears throat> Palladium, and that's what I came up with. And he didn't really ask me too much about that either, so that was even better. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we, we'll, we'll just have to wait for the headline to come out, and, and, and that says how CTAs and trend followers in particular are causing the, uh, you know, the pain of the uh, world uh, car industry, I'm sure. That's going to be the next uh, topic. Uh, oh, early 2000s, I was on a panel, uh, commodities, commodities panel, like, I don't know, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, panel in New York City, and it was um, me and a couple of guys who traded commodities fundamental, and we were comparing why you should use trend following or why you should use fundamentals, and uh, one of the experts, famous uh, commodities trader, he was talking about this 2006 copper move, and he was short, you know, it was one of the biggest moves of all time in the LME markets, and copper was, and he said he was just short the whole way up, and just, uh, that was his analysis, and he just blew it, and... Um, so maybe we'll have the same thing one of these days where we can see once again that just blindly following these trends, you know, can sometimes outfox the really smart guys. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I hear PT is also awake this morning. So even if we start early, he or she seems to be uh, wide awake in the background. She's not happy. She doesn't right. usually get up for another hour and a half. So she's <laughs> she's she's ex expressing her displeasure. <laughs> there we are. Okay, guys, um, let's see what uh, happened in, um, in, in kind of uh, FinTweet world uh, in terms of topics, discussions that we can uh, dive into. Um, we have a couple of questions uh, on our own uh, later, but let's uh, do what we normally do and see what happened uh, in Twitter land. Yeah, sounds good. I can't tell you how excited I was to read this article. It was like uh, one of the best things I read in a while. It's the Hedge Nordic CTA Roundtable. And I think it was um, <clears throat> took place back in January, talking about 2019 from these famous CTAs and, oh, maybe an allocator or two as well. And uh, I think things like this are so amazing. I mean, uh, it's uh, not a video or an audio, but it's just a magazine article, let's say. And then, But it's getting these guys together who sort of all trend follow or uh, invest in trend followers, I guess, or CTAs. And I just thought this is a lot of fun, and I would, not enough of this is done to get these a uh, bunch of people like this together to, to talk about um, the markets and CTA universe. And I thought, yeah, you know, just so seldom do I read something that I was so a lot of good topics and a lot of different opinions and maybe yeah, controversy here or there. So we'll go through some of these, and uh, I just tweeted the hell out of it. I mean, probably six different times, you know, the different quotes that I really enjoyed. So we'll uh, beg your forgiveness Perfect. if you get kind of like uh, bored by it. But the first one is uh, there are different ways that CTAs can do well during stock market declines. A large exposure to long bonds is one of them. In some market declines, protection came mostly from commodities. In other periods, protection has come from currencies. So I just thought, yeah, that's a great way to start uh, because, you know, what he's essentially saying is um, I mean, we can be short indices as well, stock indices as well. But over the years, uh, protecting the portfolio and adding uh, value in, during a, a stock market decline has come from these other three sectors as well. And you, who knows? You can't predict, and it's, it could be any of these three. And that's the edge we provide sometimes is 
a well-diversified portfolio of longs and shorts, not just stocks and bonds. I think that's a really important point, um, and it goes back to the whole philosophy about knowing what you don't know. And I think that's uh, you know that's that's the role we have to play. There's no doubt. I think that there is uh, or has been this um, tendency uh, for investors, um, rightly or wrongly, um, to to definitely uh, believe that when equities uh, have their trouble, that fixed income will be a big uh, play a big role in mitigating that. And we see that in different portfolio constructions. We know for sure that people like Calsters in their risk mitigation uh, portfolio has um, not only trend following, but they also have a, a sizable allocation to to long dated um, treasuries. But I think you bring. I mean, I think the, the the conversation should also then include the fact that you know, as interest rates uh, are getting much closer to zero in general, I mean, could. You know, can that part of the portfolio really play that an important role? Uh, if we have, you know, when we have the next big crisis in uh, in equities, and um, of course we don't know, um, but I think, as you said, the, the fact that we have all these other things in the portfolio, I'm sure there will be something that will help uh, mitigate those uh, losses that we will incur as well initially in the initial turn. We know that uh, unless we have a kind of a a, a long, you know, prolonged. Uh, top forming uh, environment like we saw in 1987 i guess in equities but if it's another february 2018 yeah that's going to be pain in the equity side but hopefully there'll be other things um, helping out i agree 100 percent. i mean we only need to look back to the uh to the global financial crisis you know during that you know 2008 2009 time period uh, it wasn't actually the the shorts and the equities but the longs and the bonds that protected the portfolio so this is this is the case in point right there but I agree with the observation. Um, I think you know the, the, you know the uncorrelated positioning of our portfolios, long and short. There could be any one market providing that cover if equities go down. It could be a currency market or a bunch of currency markets. It could be the energies. Um, for the past many years, we've had this uh, relatively stable negative correlation between bonds and equities. And every time there's been a risk-off environment, the bonds rallied. Which kind of like this is the way it worked, but. Has this always been the case, question mark? I don't think so. You know, if we go back to the 1970s or maybe early 1980s, the correlation was probably different. And your portfolio benefited from, you know, a diversified exposure to all sorts of markets. And if something bad in the equities happened, then maybe it's, I don't know, um, the Aussie dollar or the yen or something else that protects you or helps you out. Well, I can tell you the answer to that much because I did the study uh, a little while ago and I don't think it's changed much. So in, you're right, in the last 10 years or so after the financial crisis, I think uh, I think this was based on, on maybe daily data, I can't remember now, but it doesn't really matter. But I think uh, you're right, there has been a very stable negative correlation. I think 80, 87% of the time uh, there was negative correlation between bonds and stocks. But if you brought it out to the last 50 or 60 years, it changes actually then these two asset classes are positively correlated 66% of the time so you're absolutely right people are you know banging on a certain correlation relationship which really isn't the long term true relationship between these two asset classes as an, and as i said now with bonds being so close to yielding very little um we shouldn't expect the amplitude of those moves to help out as much as um, as as they have done uh, previously, um, and therefore having other th uh, strings uh, to play on, I think, is incredibly important. And and of course, on top of all of this, we have all these risk parity strategies today 
that um, you know are relying on 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 this ten year correlation relationship continuing forever. Um, so a lot of money will be disappointed uh, when it doesn't. I agree. And you, and you bring up a good point. Uh, how much more can bonds contribute? Because they've contributed. It's the only other sector, I suppose, that uh, maybe you know said many times gold. Uh, you know that if you do a back test, it adds value. You know just on the buy and hold. And so now with zero, and it could possibly you know anytime there is a. <clears throat> Uh, sell-off in stocks, the government bonds have a tendency to rally. So it's, you know, but how much can it even contribute? It's contributed a lot. And that's the benefit of what we do is that it's it does contribute profits, not just uh, helping to minimize the drawdowns and and the ups and downs of the mar- of a stock only, but it actually makes money. And so there's very few things that do that. Bonds have done that. Maybe they won't in the future. I mean, you know, but there'll always be this thing that doesn't go anywhere until we get back to a more free market uh, interest rate environment. But if you do have some big crashes, they'll rally, okay, or they won't go down. But not much of a contribution in the future, probably, until we have a big move down in the bonds where um, that's where all the, the headroom is. Yeah, and the, but but then on top of all of this, and and I don't want to hijack the the um, you know your 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 thought in terms of the tweets you want to bring up, but I think on top of these things happening, um, and as we move further and further into the stratosphere in terms of equities, um, it just seems to me that people are are, are becoming less uh, enthusiastic about trend. We we've seen the the industry bleed in terms of uh, flows. Uh, uh, managers, the industry as a whole, have seen a lot of uh, investors depart uh, in the last uh, couple of years. Um, it, generally, it seems like if asset flows are, are going into less liquid uh, strategies, um, very much related to equities, uh, such as private equity and stuff like that. So it just seems to me that a lot of these flows are, are, are going in the wrong direction at the wrong time. Um, but okay, I mean, people are getting bored maybe uh, when they see equities go up 30% and, and, and the CTAs only go up 10 or 12% uh, the same year. Um, it's, it's, it's tough. Haven't we seen this before? So many times. And the performance chasing of that is a real detriment to investors' returns. Yeah. Good stuff, Jerry. Great start. What else? Um, and by the way, uh, I agree with you completely. I think uh, what uh, what uh, Cameron does in terms of getting these managers together. I had the pleasure of participating in a forum a couple of weeks, uh, sorry, a couple of years back, uh, up in Stockholm, and and it is great to be together with a lot of uh, peers from our industry and and debate some of these uh, points. Another one I liked is um, all of this demonstrates the dangers of pigeonholing yourself. And CTA trend following is just it's crisis alpha against equities. It's rubbish because it's been manipulated and simplified. And so I'm a big anti-crisis alpha person and um, because I don't think we should just exist. And they do get into it more. And one of the panelists us talk about, look, you guys only exist for helping us uh, with equities. That's, that's the only reason CTA should exist. And I'm like, that's crazy because... We have great systems, we have a risk-adjusted approach that preserves capital, we have all these other markets that can make just as much money as the equities. It's all been lost due to the past 10 years, but it's true and it's going to be true in the future. And uh, I go on to say, you know, why don't we 
my comment to this was, you know, if you really want crisis alpha, you know where I'm going here, and that is, give us your stocks to trade that's in your portfolio that we're supposed to be helping, this dysfunctional portfolio that's just long a bunch of equities. And it's going to have a 50%, 60% drawdown. It has. It probably will in the future. Now, can you guys, with a 5 or 10% allocation, can you help me out here? No, we can't. I mean, we can we can say we will, but we won't. And, we're not, and we have to uh, trade suboptimal systems and time frames in order to make sure that when the S&P has a big sell-off, we can produce some crisis alpha. So probably Friday, people were getting ready, right, because it was – the Dow was down three or 400 points at one point, and okay, let's get ready because we may have to go short here, even though I don't think that would probably be a good system in the back test to go short anytime the S&P falls three or 400 points in a day, but you've got to get ready for this because this is what we're on this planet to do, but the fact of the matter is if we use those same great systems, the trend systems, with all of these equities that they trade, if they allocated that to us, uh, we could possibly help because uh, that would be a much bigger um, benefit to the portfolio than a small allocation to CTAs. Well, Morris provided crisis alpha this week. <laughs> well, uh, I don't want to call it that way, but if you allocate 1% to my, uh, to my strategy, then probably not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Didn't we just uh, recently um, read a paper which said that um, some form of Portfolio optimization leads to very unreasonably high allocations to um, trend-following CTA, such as 20% or more, which is so unreasonable because then you could actually get something out of it, but um, that's a different story. Oh, you've let the numbers speak for themselves. It's going to be mm. a huge amount, and these coming from people who uh, make these decisions, who purport to care about numbers. And uh, But, uh, yeah, that article goes on to make the you know make the, the bottom line was that um well we can't have that much dispersion or tracking error so if you underperform or overperform that's uh, quite a bit of error there tracking error to this holy grail of of stocks in the s p 500 that we're all focused on and that becomes the bottom line and it's just i'm shaking my head i mean like what planet is this and uh, so drinking this kool-aid Smart people are coming up with um, things like this. Not their own, not their fault necessarily. They're just exactly. part of the group, and it's the group. It's this group think, and um, it'll all come crashing down. And we just have to be there and ready with our performance and models, and continuing to do the same thing and saying the same thing. When I designed my portfolio, I mean, I said, I you know, what is my target? My target is to make money trading that. Enjoy doing it if it's possible. Um, and have a great risk-adjusted return that compares favorably to other strategies. I mean, the the idea of targeting a tracking error didn't even cross my mind. I mean, what's the benefit of that? You know, who's being helped if you have a wonderful, small, wonderfully small tracking error to an equity index? I mean, what's the point of that? I just don't get it. It's like the Apple coming out and saying, well, you know, we have this new iPhone in 2007, but it it doesn't look quite like the BlackBerry. Let's make it look more like the BlackBerry because we don't want to get too far away from the industry standard. That's not a good analogy, but at some point in time, the CTAs will return, the diversification and systematic approach will return to having less risk and making more money than the equities. And then people will forget all of this silliness. 
would be so great if the starting point, kind of like, you know, the entire market seems to be anchored to a long only buy and hold investment to the S&P 500. Like you say, Jerry, it's the holy gray. Everybody needs to benchmark him or herself against that thing. But why is this the starting point? Why is this the market's reference point and anchor? Why can it not be, here's a bunch of assets that can be traded in a liquid way, long and short, and the starting point, therefore, is this diversified systematic trend following strategy. That's your benchmark. Try to beat that. Start there, and then if you can, and if you must, add other things to it, um, but not the other way around. You know, as, as time goes by, um, I feel I'm getting kind of more and more opinionated about this term crisis alpha. I have to admit, first of all, I love the people who came up with it. So, you know, the, 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 you know that that's for sure. But first of all, we have to remember that crisis alpha was coined as a term in 2011. And, um, you know, all of us have been doing this for a lot longer than since 2011. So, of course, we, we never had a mandate to deliver crisis alpha because it didn't exist as a term back in 1974, back in 1988, and all of that stuff. So, um, but, but initially when it came out, um, I'm pretty sure that I felt excited about it because finally we had a term that institutional investors could gravitate to and they were, and they wanted it. They, they, after the financial crisis, they wanted crisis alpha. So yeah, we need trend following and we saw inflows going into the industry. But now it's turned against us, right? Because now investors realize that, well, maybe we don't really want crisis alpha because, you know, equities continue to go up. And and when they turn, they turn so quickly that the initial uh, 5% we want to hedge because equities don't, or, or maybe 10% that we want to quote-unquote hedge, we're not going to get any offset really from, from CTAs uh, uh, necessarily, which is true. We don't know if, if we, you know, how quickly we... We react to that. So now it's become a little bit of a burden, I would say, a big burden for the industry that everybody talks about this crisis alpha. So, so yeah, I mean, it's. Um, it, I think we need to come up with a better term, if we can, as an industry, really put our heads together, something that institutional investors can gravitate to, because I think narrative matters. But there's no doubt that equities, and I had this discussion on, you know, you know on our side uh, this week while I was in the office. I mean, Equities has such a big emotional impact on investors. It's kind of almost, uh, you know, like we start, this is the starting point, and then we kind of put investments around our equity exposure, and clearly we fit into that narrative, but it also means that they expect us to perform in a certain way when equities go down, which we can't guarantee, and we're very honest about it, but as soon as we are, the um, the enthusiasm for investing in the trend-following strategy, you know, drops uh, like a stone. So, um, so I think we need better narrative. I think, and, and I think it really is important that we come up with a different way to get investors excited about what we do and the value of what we do, so that it ends up, as 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 Moritz was saying, so that it ends up actually playing the the full role that it should, not just a one or two percent allocation, which is meaningless anyways. So even if we could provide crisis alpha, we it wouldn't hurt, it wouldn't help. Uh, the investor, if they only allocate one or two percent, uh, anyway. So, better narrative. If anyone has any suggestions, by all means, send them to us, and we'll debate it. And we might even call you up and invite you to come and 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 discuss it, because I think this is critical for for our industry as we move forward. Well, lucky you. I'm sitting right here. I'll tell you what. 
I am. So I think it gets back to the heart of one of the uh, heart of what we do and, and one of the assumptions that we all have when we sign up to do trend following and back testing and system creation and design. And that is um, one of the initial ideas we have is that all of these trades, when you do the back test, they all have the same expectation. And so it, it's no uh, cost and lack opportunity cost of trading currencies and commodities and bonds, long and short. And so that has not been the case. And so until that gets back to being the case, we're going to have a hard time making that argument. I read another article this week that talks about uh, allocating and chasing performance and what it, how to get yourself out of that and how it doesn't work. But it also said if you don't do some of that, you know, you're going to have risk of losing your job. And so it's, you could even find people who said, oh, I understand how trend following works. Yes, all the trades you do, they have the same expectation. They're going to make the same amount of money as, as the stocks over time. Diversification is a free lunch. I get it, but I can't really make a big allocation to CTAs now. My superiors, you know, I would lose my job possibly. There's career risk. And so, I, and so when we get back to those normal times where the performance is just as good slash better than stocks and, of course, the the diversification yields a much safer and less volatile portfolio at the same time, it's going to be tough. But I think you have to ask yourself, does an explanation that is purely just the truth, is that good enough? Is that something we can go with? And I think we should give it a shot. And um, just, you know, what is the truth? And the truth is, uh, and I don't really like this word because it sounds a little pretentious, but it but it's um, something I came up with when one of my friends sent me an email a few years ago. He's a CTA, and the title of it was The Perfect Hedge. CTAs are the perfect hedge. And I fired back at him, and I'm like, you know better than this, right? You know, you know this is crazy. And he goes, yeah, sorry about that. It's really the perfect portfolio, uh, not the perfect hedge. And I think that's where we need to get with people and just say, look, you know, it really is our goal here is really to put it together in a way where – you have all of these maximum diversification and maximum risk control without sacrificing profit. Um, we're going to make more money than stocks or just as much with lots less risk. And until we get back to that, and we can honestly say to people, you know, um, these markets, you're not losing anything by being in currencies and commodities, longs and shorts. Um, and you can see the benefits of the diversification, you know, it's going to be difficult. But I think that's where it all lies is just sort of saying, okay, one of these days people will sort of agree with what, or trend following, diversified trend following goes away, doesn't work any longer, whatever. But I think that's where we have to go because that's the truth. I agree with that. And I, and I like the fact that you mentioned this thing about the truth because at least and I, I'm sure we, we all do this, but, but I think what's, what's really important for people to understand is that when we say that, um, you know, uh, adding trend following to a portfolio of equities and bonds, uh, you know, will build better and, you know, performing and, 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 and safer portfolios, it's, it's obviously not an opinion. It's a fact. It's the truth. There's never been a white paper written to disprove this. Um, and so, so I'm just interested in finding out what assumptions are people putting into their, uh, you know, decisions to come out with a with with the result saying I should have no trend following in my portfolio. I I don't get it. I've never I, I can't imagine what those assumptions will be, um, or at least 
I don't I don't think they will be very realistic. Um, depend, of course, if we're looking at one or two or five years, we don't know if we're going to add value or not. That's not the point. But if you're looking at 20, 30, 40 years, which a lot of institutional investors have as their time horizon, um, I think I think your point, uh, Jerry, and, and I think in general, I mean, I think we have a lot of evidence on our side that that we should pay, play a more important role in in, in anyone's portfolio. Look, um, every time I speak to investors, and um, you know what I sometimes do is I show the long-term performance of some select CTAs uh, with a long-term track record like yourselves and the overall industry, and I compare that to other investment choices like long only buy and hold. Right, and I'm, I'm not using a legend on the chart, and I'm not telling them what's what. Of course, they can recognize what the S and P 500 is because they're looking at it all day, right? But when you then ask them, well, what is what is it that you want to have? It's a lock chart, right? And you could even mask it and say, don't show them the chart, show them rolling 10-year returns or something like that. Every single one of them goes for the systematic trend-following CTA curve because it is the best one with the least amount of risk. If you have them look at only of the last five years, they do not anymore. It's so to me, it is this uh, human thing of um, being driven and being emotionally incapable of um, sticking to something and just chasing the next best thing. And because it has worked so well over the past five years, you completely forget and erase from memory what you've just seen and what you should be doing. And you reject to even accept the facts. Um, and it is very difficult to really, in quotes, fight against this. It is the recency bias. And what what is so amazing about this is that behavioral finance is has a has has a big megaphone these days, you know, um, with Kahneman and Tversky and all of those great psychologists, Daniel Crosby. I mean, the internet is full of good material. There are many good books written about those biases and the emotional shortcomings when it comes to trading. And when you go and speak to institutional investors, they will nod their head. They will say, yes, I have been reading Thinking Fast and Slow, and I know about this stuff, and I've informed myself, and those biases exist. But they fail to accept the consequence in a way. It's kind of like, oh, it's very interesting to read about this. We're all lemmings, in a way, uh, dummies walking around. But you, you turn around on a heel and just go on with your life in the same way that you did before without changing anything uh, based on the facts that you've just observed. You bring up a good point. I mean, when I interviewed Daniel Crosby, and, and I recommend everyone to go and, and listen to his stuff and, and read his books, uh, I think he's uh, sort of... Uh, doing a great job in, in in actually also providing some of the narrative that that we need. But but one of his uh, one of his big points, um, and I'm not sure it's exclusively to him, but one of the points are of course that you know more knowledge doesn't necessarily make people better investors, right? I mean, people mm. can, as you say, people can read about it, they can kind of nod their head and said, yeah, no, I understand it, but. But until they do it, until they implement it, until they take action, you know, more knowledge just isn't uh, very useful. Um, and that's the challenge. And I think this is not just related to what we do in our industry, right? I mean, it relates to everything in life. I mean, you have to take action. You can't just uh, sit and consume information um, and uh, and think, you know, that's good enough. I mean, um, so 
yeah, it's this is important. Yeah, you know, I think um, I've said before, I often would get in these meetings at, with uh, institutional investors and uh, say the same thing all the time, and they would like it and acknowledge it. And then I felt like, well, I would be much more likely to get an investment from each one of these individual people at the table with their own personal money than I would from this institution. And so I think, you know, who are you answering to? You know, they're always answering to someone else and then ultimately answering to clients possibly who are the least informed, except they think they're informed because investing equals the stock market and these historical massive drawdowns will all be in them because we've all decided to make stocks 90% of what we do. So that's going to preserve my career better than striking out on this risky behavior of saying, hey, we're 100% or 70% diversified trend followers. And uh, that is, regardless of performance, that's just not going to fly, regardless of the numbers and the data and the science. You know, out of one mouth, they're into the science and evidence-based and blah, blah, blah. But in another situation, um, you know, we've had many examples of this. Um, and I, I also think that that I mean this is this is why to 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 a large extent that every week we go on and we kind of say the same thing but in different ways and we continue to deliver very consistently the same message and of course the the, the one of the reasons we do that is that it's not enough for everyone sitting out there listening you know thousands of people listening to our conversations every week which we appreciate but what we really hope is that every week just one one person will say yes. The coin finally dropped. You know, I need to get this into my portfolio, so I'm going to go and do something about it. It's great to have a lot of people listening to to the conversation, but what we really want is just one, two people every week taking action and doing this, um, because it's going to be a life-changing um, decision when um, the next big thing happens. And and even if something doesn't happen, we know that building a portfolio of uncorrelated return streams is a great idea and uh, yeah and you know can i just say a little bit i think you and i approach this slightly different sure neils because i'm listening to your words carefully and you say it slightly different than i do and i think this is another not that i'm right and you're wrong i'm just saying this is another way i think uh, i like my way better because it's not getting done in your portfolio it's not getting chesapeake in your portfolio it's not what i'm talking about uh, now, eventually, yes, that's what will occur, of course, when, you know, with all right-thinking people. But that's not my argument. No, we're not getting CTAs in the portfolio. We're not getting trend following in the portfolio. I never say trend following. I say currencies and commodities, stocks and bonds, in this maximum diversification, maximum uh, risk control way, don't you want to get this, these commodities and these uh, currencies in there, long and short, along with your stocks and bonds that you already have, using this, uh, how do you get them in there? They don't work buy and hold. You can't add commodities in mass uh, like you can maybe gold or like you could put into your portfolio, like stocks who historically have gone up over time. How are you going to get it in there? You're only going to get it in if it's systematic trend or systematic in general. And let's go that route. Leave me out of it. Leave Dunn out of it. It's not about individual CTAs and industry or anything like that. It's like, how are you going to get safety in there? And plus, I mean, you could buy options, which will be a net loser, plus 
it's going to make money for you. It's going to be an add to your profitability, not a detractor. No, I agree with that, uh, Jerry. But 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 you're right. We we are saying things slightly differently because, at the end of the day, I I agree that people need this in their portfolio. That's what they want. And of course, it's not about specific names. It's not about you know which manager that you you ask to do it. But but I actually think that step number one must be to go and find a manager to do it for you because I actually don't believe that people are prepared to do the work, frankly, uh, that it is required in order to implement long, short across all these markets on their own. I just don't think it's a good idea, frankly. Most people will end up doing it wrong or, or you know, and, and not really see the benefits uh, to get. So, yes, I am talking about finding managers to help them do it um i um but but of course the overriding uh theme is like you say you need to get it in your portfolio maybe we we disagree on on how to do it um well your you step know. your step one is my step two and and vice versa but it's right yeah we're still hitting in the right in the right sure. direction yeah yeah cool what else happened at the uh, nordic hedge roundtable that we can dig into uh, well, we talked earlier about some of the large um, inflows this year going to oh, yeah, sure. short-term traders. Short-term CTAs are uh, raising more money than long-term CTAs. But one of the people on the panel said, uh, some of these fast strategies are good on paper, but in practice, if you're trying to put billions of dollars to work to meaningfully provide crisis protection to a big portfolio, it's not going to be there. I think they're nice and niche and small size, but not in big size. So. I'm not f that familiar with shorter term systems that can really get in there and help and if but people are raising uh, at least a few people are raising billions of dollars but most of us are still committed to a longer term approach. Yeah, I mean I think it's a big debate right clearly the um being able to say to people, oh, I didn't lose so much in February of 18, or I made money during this period where equities went down, I mean, that sells really well with uh, investors. And of course, as we know, that is more likely to be a short-term strategy that can just, you know, be be, be in the right position, um, you know, quickly after a turn, et cetera, et cetera. But, and I don't want to I don't want to sound critical of of of, of short term versus long term because a lot of my, a lot of the guests on the podcast are from the short term space and I have lots of respect for them. But I will say that there are very few. There are some, but there are very few short term strategies that have been able to compete with a long term trend over time. In a single year, sure. In a two years, perhaps. But long term, I haven't really seen it, frankly. If you buy a cheap copy of TradeStation and do a backtest on trend in diversified markets, you can't really, f it's hard to find a systematic approach in medium to long term that doesn't work. <laughs> so, I mean, at least historically, so it may not be that great. Uh, you know, you can always improve over and over time. All of us have definitely improved a lot over time. We get better and we figure things out. But that's the beauty of these of these trend following models that are medium to long term is that you really can't find any that don't work in a broadly diversified portfolio, you know, that's not even optimized, overly optimized. It's just an easier game to play, even though uh, and the hard part about it has been uh, recently the, um, the diversification didn't really help compared to the stocks and then the drawdowns, you know, the drawdowns are difficult to stomach, but uh, historically there's drawdowns and there's lots of profits.
<clears throat> and of course, like with everything else we talk about <clears throat> in terms of diversification, it's not really a question of one or the other. Should I have a short-term manager or a long-term? You should have a little bit of everything, right? That's the point. I mean, uh, they probably work well together. I would still favor, I would overweight the longer term because I think, as, as Jerry, you point out, I mean, there's a hell of a lot of evidence, uh, not least from, from Chesapeake and Don, that it really does work in the long run and continues to work. But, um, you know, and also I think that, frankly, competition in the short-term space where your edge sometimes is linked very highly to where the server is uh, located and how quickly you can get in and out. And, and, and as you point out, there are capacity constraints when you trade short-term. So, um, so you would imagine that it's harder to keep up um, and you're competing against uh, Renaissance Technologies uh, at the same time. So uh, that's not easy. I like them. I mean, just like you said, it's, um, you know, for a smaller portfolio, like, you know, my private portfolio, it is a very relevant addition because it is uncorrelated. Uh, I'm invested in the short term CTA who I really like, uh, who I think they are successful. They have a long track record and they're doing something that I myself cannot do because I do not have the equipment. I do not have the co-located server and all that type of stuff. I'm paying a fee for that. Um, within their trading program, the transaction costs are six to eight percent a year already, right? So I'm I'm like six to eight percent behind, and yet they're able to crank out some money out of those markets in a very uncorrelated way to my uh, longer-term trend-following portfolio. But I do like them because they are systematic; they run a system. They're not, you know, shooting from the hip. There is something, there is a structure, there is some inefficiency in the market, which apparently they're able to exploit. Uh, it's something that I cannot do. And so from a portfolio perspective where I think, well, I'd like to add many different systems. They must be systems. That's a requisite. But add many of you know those different things together, that's a great thing. So um, I like them. And But of course, if you are a very large institutional investor, um, the capacity constraints of that industry are, you know, so much, so much harder than with, with us on the longer term side. I mean, maybe the overall capacity for those shorter term guys is, I don't know, 10 billion or something like this. There just isn't more. Um, else they would have too much slippage, too much market impact, you know, they couldn't produce the returns anymore because the holding periods are too short, whatever it is. So if you have a 200 billion portfolio, you know, you're, you won't be getting all that much from your short-term allocation. Do you you'll think get it's much harder. more from the long-term. Do, do you guys think it's harder to find a good short-term manager than it is to find a good trend follower? Because there's been a, you know, there's, there was a big short-term manager last year that's been in the industry for a long time, that closed shop. Uh, I know, of course, the one you're thinking about, Morris, and I agree, that's a great uh, shop. Uh, I can think of one or two other people that I mm. think are doing great in the short-term space. So, yeah, uh, they're out there. But it's not that I have a long list of them. I can name a lot you know, a lot more trend followers that I would be comfortable with than I can on the yes, short-term I mean, side. I, I also know the one that you were talking about, that, you know, clothes shop. Um, maybe there, there, you know, there, there's surely more than five, you know. There are many, many smaller ones. But really, I could probably list five who have, say, more than two or three hundred million in their programs, and, and um, maybe there are six, but off the top of my head, I could probably name five. That's it. And then there's some over the years that have criticized and made fun of long-term trend followers, uh, CTAs who trade 
like we do, who've seen the need to have a longer look back period to maintain profitability uh, because we've turned our back on crisis alpha and providing this uh, stock market uh, uh, risk reduction. And uh, so I'm like saying, hey, look, you know, you've, if you're able to trade shorter term and provide crisis alpha consistently by shorting the S&P uh, before it crashes 50% or has a bad day or a bad week, you know, that's the new crisis alpha. That's the new crisis is that uh, we're at all time highs a, a month or two later, but you know, we had this huge crisis over a week or so. Then if you can do that, do it and pat yourself on the back. We can't do it. You know, we let, leave us alone and, you know, and this, take us off the crisis alpha list, the long-term CTAs. And we're more of this perfect portfolio, which is like a, a punchline now because you're not a very good portfolio, not nearly as good as my stocks only. Okay, cool. We can deal with that. We'll eventually, hopefully, get back there with the systems and the markets. But until then, you know, all you short-term guys, you're the crisis alpha. Leave us alone. Do your thing. I figure out ways to get more capacity. You know, you're so darn smart and you're you're better than every all of us, which is true if you can make money in a shorter-term system. You're much better off, uh, everyone's gonna flock to you, whether it's crisis alpha or not. I mean, one of my questions is, if you can find this short-term guy and you really believe in them and they're making consistent money over time without these large drawdowns like everyone else, why do you even have any money in stocks at all? You've already found something tremendously superior. Why are you even thinking about what, how is it going to help me with my equities? So it's just a nonsense argument uh, but I'm really in favor of more of these short-term guys taking up that mantle and leaving us alone. Just figure out ways. You're smart enough. You're, you're where you are now, so keep going and figure out a way to create more capacity. I like the term the perfect portfolio. So maybe that's, uh, you know, that's how we need to talk about what we do. It's definitely our attempt, you know? I mean, yeah. uh, I don't know. Do we, does everybody go into meetings and say this, you know, that uh, you know, we're really trying to give you something? I know you're not going to utilize it and you don't agree, mm. but do you, is it okay for my bottom line to be something that's amazingly great, you know, that even though you're going to uh, put 5% in or 0% in, um, but that's my goal. Is that okay? You think I'm okay doing that? Um, I mean, it's obvious, you know, this is what we're trying to do. And like I've said, when you and I got going in the industry, Niels, and work, even working together, it was uh, people would put, put it, bring up charts. Here's the 10 biggest drawdowns or bear markets in uh, stocks, and here's how CTAs did during that period. And we would always do better, add value when stocks, you know, 2008 stocks were in a bear market downtrend. That evolved somehow into crisis alpha on bad days bad weeks, bad months, how did you guys do, um, you know, on that specific uh, short time period? It's really unfortunate. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Um, the whole concept of time frame has changed, and I, I wonder maybe that is part of why we are being held to this really high standard now where we almost have to give negative correlation, uh, which is, by the way, a completely different topic. We can talk about the confusion I think people have between non-correlated and negative correlation, but um, but the fact that we now um, you know have to provide this uh, negative correlation uh, even over a few days or, or a week, um, 
and I and I wonder whether it's just because we now all have instant uh, massive amount of 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 information uh, through the internet and and so our our thinking our our time frame has been shrunk by by everything being instant including um, what we expect from, from from our trend followers I don't know maybe were there any other things you wanted to bring up, Jerry? Yeah, let's from, talk yeah. about two more. I'll okay, save the best cool. two for last. Oh, cool. This is one of my favorites. I'm, I agree with the first part. I don't understand necessarily the second part. So I'm glad you guys are here to help me out on this. Uh, the only measure that controls downside risk while not hurting profitability is diversification over different trends. Beautiful. Love that. Um, this will typically lead to a higher daily volatility without longer lasting deep drawdowns. I didn't understand uh, why trading more markets would lead to higher daily volatility of an obviously longer lasting uh, drawdowns. You know, you shorten your drawdowns probably by the more diverse your portfolio is. I'm not sure I can help you with that. Actually, I don't understand why that would lead uh, to higher daily volatility either, frankly. Um, I'd say the opposite should be true, right? Mm. The more diversified your portfolio, the more uncorrelated everything is, the smaller the daily volatility expectation. And then finally, um, this is the uh, the uh, kind of one that I just shake. My, you know, this is kind of like uh, not true. This is not true. But this came from an allocator on the panel. The real value of CTAs, as I see it, is as a diversifier to equity holdings. It's not because you want returns. If you want returns, you buy stocks. And CTAs cannot compare to stocks in the long run. <laughs> well, number one mm -hmm. is uh, that's the no. only way we compare favorably is in the long run. You know, my definition of long run, this person's definition of long run might be three or four years or five. But uh, yeah, certainly in the long run, um, diversified trend, long and short, systematic trend following makes more money than stocks. And it's risk adjusted as well. So um, we just uh, don't want ourselves to fall into this trap of it being true because it's not, and it uh, more than likely will revert back to what the evidence really is over a long period of time is that CTAs are really the only investment you need because they, they trade all the markets. Well, I mean, again, I think it, uh, you, you're, you're probably... Um, I, I don't I don't know who who obviously said that I haven't uh, I, I haven't read the the transcript that uh, detailed but uh, I, I I'm guessing that it's someone who's taking a, a relatively short uh, view on 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 time frame and uh, all I can say is that in the 45 years uh, we've been doing this we have outperformed the s p so uh, so the fact that uh, someone thinks that uh, you get more returns from equities than you get from a trend follower is um, uh, based on the evidence, not true. Hundred percent. Anyways, um, let's jump to some uh, questions. We've got a couple of questions this week, but uh, the first question we have from Andy actually came to us via our voicemail, which always excites us. It uh, makes it a little bit uh, different. So let's jump to the first question this week from Andy and um, see what Andy had to say.
Good day, fellas. This is Andy calling from Toronto, Canada. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you guys uh, sincerely for everything that you do. I, I truly believe that uh, Top Traders belongs in the AAA tranche of financial podcasts. So thanks again for everything uh, that you guys do for us. So my question today has to do with the trading of CFD products. Um, it goes without saying that there is a terrible amount of leverage associated with these products, but I'm just wondering if you guys can chime in on some of the lesser known facts uh, associated with these products, uh, particularly uh, things to keep top of mind with regard to liquidity uh, of these products. So if you guys can provide any sort of color as to the uh, pros and cons of these products and anything we should keep in mind when building a portfolio of, of uh, a portfolio of these guys. Alrighty, so thank you for taking my question and uh, looking forward to the episode. Cheers. Thanks so much, Andy, for your kind words. And let's see if we can collectively um, come up with something um, that helps you out a little bit regarding your question on CFDs. Now, I personally have never traded a CFD, and we don't do it at Dunn either. So I will like to start deferring to one of you guys that may have um, uh, an idea. But maybe, I mean, Moritz, you're always very good with kind of definitions. Um, and maybe not everyone listening to us today know what a CFD is. Do you, Is there an easy way to explain what a CFD is and how it's different from a futures contract? Because CFDs, I know that Andy was calling in from, from Canada, but CFDs... Um, were very popular and maybe still are in um, in the UK. I know because of I think there are some very favorable tax treatment uh, of CFDs. So, um, do you have a a little bit of a insight that you can share there, Moritz? I'll try my best. First of all, definition CFD stands for contract for difference. It is a leveraged product. A leverage delta product it's not an option that is non-linear but it's akin to a futures contract in the sense that it gives you leveraged exposure to an underlying reference asset um, let's take an example say crude oil assume crude oil trades at 60. Um, you can buy a cfd a long exposure cfd on crude oil that will give you exposure to that market but in a leveraged way um, it may stop you out if crude oil touches 30, in which case it's two times leverage because you would pay kind of like the intrinsic value. You would come up with $30 to, you know, trade something that's actually worth 60. And by that example, if uh, you, you move that stop, the intrinsic stop of the product higher and higher, closer to the spot price, then the higher your leverage will be. And... I have no actual trading experience with CFDs, but unlike a futures contract, they're not, um, I don't want to say they're unregulated, but they're not trading on a regulated futures exchange. They're trading on in trading portals, kind of like OTC trading platforms, many of which I think are geared to retail investors. And a lot of, um, a lot of the activity apparently seems to be in the currency markets where there are platforms that offer exposure to currencies in a massively leveraged way. Uh, like, you know, leverage of a thousand times or even more than a thousand times is not unheard of, which means that, you know, if you're a thousand times leveraged, if something moves by 10 basis points, then you're already liquidated at that point. So it's kind of like a tiny move in the market and you're out of the position. So I, I don't think if you wanted to build a diversified trend-based portfolio using CFDs, 
I don't want to say that that is impossible, but it wouldn't really work with those highly leveraged products. You would have to, I think, select contracts. Um, you know, they can't be leveraged. We're trading futures. Those are leveraged, right? But it needs to be um, within, you know, within reason, I'd say. Um, and then it's possible. I, I don't want to look the the beauty to me, the, you know, the futures contracts, the the implied, you know, basis or the funding rate in those futures. This is the the the, the, the aggregate rate of the overall market participants, which is, you know, uh, there's lots of volumes, lots of institutional players, very efficiently priced, tightly priced. In those CFD products, this is not necessarily the case, right? So the, the funding rate that may be implied in the CFD to give you the leverage exposure may be very high, meaning that, you know, the forward or the futures price that you pay is uh, is higher than it, it should really be. And that may be a drag on your portfolio uh, when you trade those products. But other than that, I'm not the expert. No, I mean, I think you bring up a couple of uh, points that might also be relevant uh, for Andy. And of course, you know, um, I mean, I think it is something. I think it is a product from from my limited knowledge that you can certainly get started with it, with smaller commitments than a futures contract and all of that. So there could be some advantages for certain types of investors. But you know, every anything that's highly leveraged, you have to be super careful. So so be aware of that. Um, but it is also a product that has other kinds of risks. I think you uh, you probably alluded to because I think the counterparty risk that you kind of try to eliminate through futures, having it on a regulated exchange. I think with a CFD, you do have a counterparty risk, like if you did a a an, a, a, a a currency forward as opposed to a currency futures, right? So so be aware of that as well. You need to find obviously um, solid counterparts if you are trading. Uh, CFDs that can honor your the, the their commitment, um, you know, especially through during crisis times, um, where we saw, of course, last time that uh, some financial institutions um, disappeared, so to speak. So, is there CFDs is something you've ever had uh, experience with, Jerry? I have. I wanted to trade single stocks, and at some point in time in my career, that was a good avenue to go down, and it was uh, probably I did it in Europe. Um, not the U.S., but uh, yeah, the only comment I would have is that it sounded like Andy was concerned about the leverage that people use. And I think um, maybe it's the OTC part or the leverage part or the fills part it wasn't fair, but uh, I think you can get a fair amount of leverage on futures and interactive brokers. If you're trading stocks, you can get a f uh, pretty decent leverage there as well, as much as you may need. But uh, I think if these products like um, are helping to, for people to abuse uh, the leverage and get themselves in trouble, then I think you know stay away from that. But um, there is a lot of different avenues um, for trading and using the proper amount of leverage with futures and a prime broker. Yeah, cool. And thanks again, um, Andy, for uh, for trying out the voicemail. Toptradersonplug.com forward slash voicemail. I think is the link if you want to. Uh, if you want to leave a comment, uh, doesn't even have to be a question. It could be just a comment, um, and if it's a good one, it uh, may show up on the show. Next question uh, is from James. Um, hi, James. Thanks so much again for putting through a question to us. This question goes like this: What 
are your opinions about where the line is on curve fitting. Should we be including instruments or synthetic instruments that rarely, if ever, make money where the trade stats are very poor? I would imagine one needs some level of evidence slash confidence that an instrument has at least exhibited a trend in the past. Question mark. However, a system building process which excludes instruments that has that exhibit low average returns, let's say over the past decade, appears to be a form of fitting. Perhaps after 50 plus instruments, this becomes less relevant. Um, good question, James, because I think it touches on one of the hardest things that we do in uh, when it comes to research, um, and that is, you know, uh, which markets to to include, and also um, essentially how to. Um, construct the models meaning um, we know of course the, the challenge between using you know when you use universal parameters in your portfolios there are some parameter combinations that obviously doesn't favor uh, certain markets and while they may favor others so I think it's just a, a generally a quite an important and, and, and really difficult discussion so uh, and I, we've touched upon this many times and, and I'm sure we will in the future as well so uh, so I'm gonna just jump to to you guys and and hear what your thoughts are in terms of of uh, James's uh, question okay um, I can think of two markets I think it's corn and weed um, those two haven't been doing really well in my portfolio lately um, when you say lately can you define that by the way oh six seven years okay you know um, but you know over longer periods of time they they have made money. I don't think there's a single market in my portfolio that hasn't made money if I test it long enough uh, using my trend systems. And what um, is long enough? Sorry to interrupt you, Morris, but I want to. Well, be with weed, you can we go can, back yeah. to the 1920s. Yeah. Right. But you know. Okay, but uh, what for you? Because I think this is actually a super. Important. So so long yeah. long enough. There is there is no definition of long enough. I right. have Bitcoin in my portfolio, as does Jerry, and there is no long enough. I mean, I'd love to have more data on Bitcoin. I just do yeah. not have it. Right. I have included it because it is highly diversifying and um, my belief is that a trend following trading style on that market will work. I have included last year, as I have mentioned here, uh, the Cymax or the Singapore Exchange um, iron ore contract. Um, again, there's, there's not 30 or 40 years of data on that contract, but I trust that a trend following trading style on that market will work. So I put them in. It is not a requirement uh, for that market to produce immediate positive P&L. So if, if I, you know, my back test on the crude oil, sorry, on the iron ore contract may show a loss for the past three or four years. And so what? I still put it in. I, I want that as a diversifier in my portfolio. So just, just the raw P&L shouldn't be the, um, uh, it shouldn't be your parameter and, and, and your, your, like your, your guiding principle here, I think. Can I ask, uh, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, uh, but can I ask just to help um, our listeners a little bit, if you look at your portfolio as a whole, forget about the markets at the fringe that mm. you uh, where we can't get the data, but let's just take the core markets where we have uh, data going back to, say, at least, um, you know, uh, early 80s. Some markets, of course, came in the 90s, but let's just call it, you know. In, in your opinion, I have two questions on my mind. One is, how long would you usually test your uh, core portfolio on in terms of data um, and and the second thing is do you think 
uh, more recent data is more important um, than the full data set. Uh, because, of course, some people will argue, well, markets change, la, 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 so you need to put more emphasis on more recent data. I mean, how do you think about these things, Moritz? Um, I want to take all the data that I can possibly get. Some of the markets I've just mentioned, wheat, uh, you can get almost 100 years, or maybe it is 100 years, even I, I, I don't remember off the top of my head. Most of the markets, on average, I'd say we have about 30 years of a history. Um, and, um, and, and I want to use all of that. If a newer market comes up, like Bitcoin, for instance, there is a two-year history available, so there's not much that I can do. I still put it in. Now, is more recent data more important to me than data that stems from the 1980s? This is a really difficult question, and I'm sure that people will, traders will have different opinions on that. And you will find quite a few that will say, the more recent data is more important to me because markets now trade in a different way and there is more electronic trading and there's a combined session and no longer just the floor session and there's different participants and it's more global and this, that and the other thing. Um, you can be in that camp and I kind of like get those points, uh, but to me, they're not they're not sufficient. I I give as much weight to the current data as I give to the past data. I really treat it all in the same way. And maybe this is just my, you know, for simplicity purposes or my simple mind, but it's also kind of like I say, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's humans either designing algorithmic systems that automatically now trade in those markets, because as we know, most of the volume is traded electronically, and certainly that hasn't been the case in the 1930s, right? Or in the 1980s, um, to the extent that we have it today. But a human being needs to program that algorithm. So at the end of the day, it is some form of human interaction that happens in the markets. And why should that, as we've just said at the earlier on that podcast with all those biases, the recency bias and all that, we have all that knowledge. We don't seem to be able to change and come to the right conclusions. So why, why should I expect that, you know, to change and the human behavior that makes up all those prices to change uh, and, and be different now than it used to be? So this is, this is kind of like a philosophical thing. I don't want to say that my point here is correct. I have no way of proving it. It's a matter of taste, I guess, at the end of the day. People can do it whatever way they want be happy with your approach. Uh, I'm happy with mine, and I like all the data and treat it in the same way. What are your thoughts, Jerry? I agree with all of that, I'm pretty sure. Um, I one probably a little bit more radical um, that uh, I wouldn't take into consideration historical performance as it relates to um, including things in my portfolio. I include everything. It's just based upon... Um, diversification and liquidity. But even if I have, you know, three markets like crude, heating oil, and unleaded that are 90% correlated sometimes, most of the time, then I will still trade all three, but at a reduced uh, size. And I don't look at performance of each individual market historically. Um, I just don't look at it. I look at, uh, here's the average trade, average win, average loss, win percentage of the entire portfolio, all the stocks, longs and shorts combined. I want to kind of stay away from slicing that data, commodities only, longs only, stocks only. So I think that goes a long ways to preventing you from doing things that are sort of um, fitted to the past too much. So I'm going to totally ignore um, 
historical performance. And since I'm trading every market the same way, which is a critical ingredient to robustness and uh, not overfitting, then when a new market comes up like Bitcoin or something that has um, less data, I don't care. I mean, you know, uh, if Bitcoin had 200 years worth of data, would it, um, when I did the back test, would, uh, the bottom line is, would Bitcoin, one out of 100 markets that I'm testing, would it create a different system of parameters? You know, would I trade differently with uh, more data from Bitcoin? No, I would, you know, it's not, a, one market is not going to, make me trade a shorter term or longer term, right? So that's another thing I hang my hat on. Like Marit said, all of these things you can just take down. No recent data is better. I'm a scientist, I'm a PhD. Trust me, recent data. Uh, you shouldn't trade all markets the same. You shouldn't assume that all markets have the same expectation. Well, you know, okay, cool. But once you start with these building blocks of what you really believe in, it leads you, I think, down, a, at least for me, into a path where I'm not as creative as most um, CTA research departments, but I am def always defaulting to robustness and uh, fewer parameters and fewer degrees of freedom and um, less uh, fitting. Sounds like Petey has an opinion about this. She's yeah. getting very excited about uh, this topic, which is great. She's very upset with that picture I posted. She's a little similar to my wife. Like, get rid of that picture. It's not a good picture of me. So uh, <laughs> the picture I posted, I don't think she was, uh, her hair was messed up. or Her feathers were out of line, I think. <laughs> but, I mean, it is a very, very interesting and I think super important uh, topic uh, that we just uh, touched on here. And... Um, and I think one thing, I mean, I, I like what, what, what you're saying. Uh, I like kind of the, you know, kind of don't pay too much attention to, to, to what's happening recently. I think that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. I also get the feeling that the more and more machine learning uh, that goes on in our industry, um, the more and more the opposite is happening because machine learning is essentially trying to optimize based on, on the data it's being fed and it's uh, to a large extent not 50 year data it's more like you know uh, the last uh, 50 months worth of data so uh, so maybe they're doing yeah. us a favor by Could rendering be. all of that short-term analysis um, unusable because it, there's too many people doing it and so uh, yeah so maybe we should just uh, embrace you know the back test the sample size right um, yeah I, I like that yeah all right, guys. Um, thanks again uh, for the questions. Keep them coming, by the way. Um, info at toptradersonplug.com is where you can email us if you don't want to leave a voicemail. And we will do our best to, uh, to give you some um, useful uh, answers and opinions about these things. Um, as we start to... Uh, uh, close down this week's conversation let me quickly run through the performance so obviously we're still in january so the monthly return is the same as the yearly beta 50 up 1.4 percent socgen cta index up 2.26 socgen trend up 3.03 socgen short-term index up 0.91 percent and the bridge alternatives index up 2.04 percent so a decent start uh for all um cta uh, indices uh, so far in 2020. Um, any final 
thought, let me just say maybe before I go to that, that um, um, I think I mentioned it last week as well, that there, there I've just released a new version of um, something I call the ultimate guide to the best investment books. Uh, it's a guide with more than 100 titles to some great books. Uh, so if you want to grab a copy, it's completely free. Just go to the website, toptradersonblog.com, and in the top banner, you could download your uh, copy uh, today. Um, anything else? Obviously, with three of us are going to meet soon. We're going to go with uh, Andrew to watch some basketball on Tuesday. Very, very excited about that. So uh, appreciate um, what you're doing here, Andrew. And uh, we're going to see each other a few times uh, next week at the conferences in Miami. Anything else? Except I like the I like I like like your more. This is your uh, schedule. You're gonna have on Tuesday. You're gonna have breakfast in Barcelona, and you're gonna end up with basketball in Miami on the same day. That's pretty uh, <laughs> extravagant. That, that, that's right. Uh, even though the, the breakfast is gonna be on the airplane, so uh, not not a very <laughs> extravagant breakfast. Uh, but you're right on that, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you guys and um, meeting Andrew in person. Um, and just having a great time with uh, some like-minded friends and uh, catching up. So, and maybe more of our listeners will be in Miami. We would love to uh, say hi if if they are. Just you exactly say hi and try to reach out. We're on Twitter. We're you know on LinkedIn or whatever. Send us an email, and yeah. uh, where we can, we'll be happy to meet for a coffee or just uh, you know chat. Absolutely, absolutely. Any final thoughts from your side, Jerry? Or uh, no, I enjoyed the podcast. I look forward to seeing you guys next week for some basketball food drink yeah and talk about the perfect portfolio of course ah uh, we've got so much yes. to talk about yes we've got so much to talk about <laughs> so on that note let's wrap up this week's conversation we hope that you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it for you and uh, if you haven't already done please share the podcast tell your friends that this is definitely now we have it on on record a triple a rated podcast for finance thanks for that andy um from Jerry, Moritz and me. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with us. We are grateful for your support and we can't wait to be back with you in a week's time. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.